words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. For the last three Sundays and throughout the rest of Lent, we continue on our seven-week sermon series on the seven practices of the way of love. And just to keep them refreshed in our minds, the seven practices are turn, learn, pray, worship, bless, rest, and go. This Sunday, we continue with the practice of worship. Normally, when we think about the word worship, we think about corporate worship, like what we're doing right now, which is right. But in corporate worship, we unite ourselves with one another to acknowledge the holiness of God. We hear God's word and we offer prayer and we celebrate the sacraments together. However, worship is not only something that's limited for Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., nor is worship limited to when a priest is present or only or only limited to when worship is being done in the church building. We worship not a stationary God who tries to keep himself safe and away from imperfect humans, but a God who has never shied away from stepping into the messiness of the human experience. A God who actually desires to dwell with us a desire that was so strong that the unformed God took on human flesh. And so worship is not centered around this altar or this church building we find ourselves in. Worship is centered around Jesus, God in the flesh, who as we heard in our gospel reading from John this morning, came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To worship God then means to put Jesus at the center of our worship. And we do that by offering ourselves to his service and his ways in loving response for his loving action on the cross that brought salvation to the world. And that's how we worship in our daily lives outside of Sunday mornings. This was the way that true worship for God was always supposed to be. In our first reading from Numbers this morning, the Israelites are in the desert. They're hungry, impatient, and thirsty. And they complain that the food God has provided for them is, quote, miserable food. And that they were better off in Egypt where they had just left after being liberated from God himself from slavery. It says that God sent poisonous snakes among the people that bit the people and brought death among them. Now, we must take into account that the Israelites had been complaining on the way there and probably for days along the journey. But complaining about not having food or drink was not what was evil or what was wrong. God had provided for them all along the way. He had provided for them water and he had provided for them manna to eat. So God had provided for their daily needs. What became the problem was that the Israelites, in their lack of patience, began making into an idol the very place that had enslaved them, mistreated them, and had oppressed them. Instead of worshiping the God that had liberated them himself, they began to worship what they had just been liberated from. The problem became when they were willing to overlook and idealize even the murder of their own children by Pharaoh, their enslavement by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's ruthless oppression. And they falsely believed that somehow all that was better 
than what the Lord God was offering them. And what the Lord God was offering them was liberation, freedom, and a new life. So in a way, the serpents were exactly what the Israelites asked for when they were complaining. What Egypt did to the Israelites was not any different than what the serpents did in the wilderness to them. Like Egypt had done, the serpents also acted violently against them, biting them and killing them as the Egyptians had done. And seeing the error of their ways in the midst of their suffering and with no other way out, they called out to God as they did before when they could no longer bear the oppressive hand of Egypt. And as God had before, he heard their plea and commanded Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent and to set it on a pole so that all who were bitten by this bronze serpent would look at it and live. The bronze serpent that was made in the image of the very serpents killing the Israelites was the very thing that would save them. Israel in the desert had failed to see the ugliness and the costliness of the sin that they were leaving behind. They had wrongfully molded all that sin they had witnessed in Egypt, the oppression, the violence, the death, the injustice, and they molded it into a God that would provide for them better than what the Lord God was providing for them in the desert. And remember, God was providing for their daily needs. God had liberated them from Egypt and from Pharaoh. So instead of worshiping the God who had liberated them and was bringing them to a good land where they would dwell with God and find rest and peace, they chose to worship in the place of God, Egypt, and Pharaoh. God had liberated them precisely so that they would be free to worship him, free to put God in the center of their lives, free to serve the Lord in response to his loving act of liberating his own people, whom he wanted to dwell with. And this was always the Lord's intent. And as we read throughout the rest of scripture, has always been the Lord's intent. For creation to be centered around its creator and respond in love back and forth. But we cannot say we do not fall into the error of the Israelites ourselves. Human history shows that like the Israelites, we humans tend to idealize and worship sin. We will tend to turn the blind eye, put under the rug, or simply ignore all the death that surrounds us, the injustice that goes on to our neighbors and the oppression that we humans cause one another. We have and continue to idolize countries or leaders even when they are killing, when they are oppressing, and when they don't seek out justice. When we do this, we also look back to what the Lord has already liberated us from in Jesus. When we do this, we choose death. And like Paul says in our Ephesians reading this morning, we go back to trespasses and sin that we had once lived in. And we follow the course of this world, following the rulers and spirits at work among those who are disobedient. But thanks be to God that in Jesus, he brings light 
to expose what is going on in the dark so that we can see those of our neighbors who have been affected by the evil sin, by the hurt, by the misuse of power that keeps them down and the most vulnerable. And we also see how the Lord lifts these people up and gives to these people, to those who are oppressed, to those who seek justice, his heavenly kingdom. Jesus says elsewhere in, in the Gospels that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor and the hungry and to those who grieve, to those who seek justice, to the peacemakers, to the merciful, to those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Jesus came not only to give the kingdom to these who are rejected and ignored by the world, but also to become one of them. Jesus came from a people under oppression of the Roman Empire. He was one who had survived the slaughter of babies by King Herod when he was a baby. Jesus was a poor man who had worked with his hands as a carpenter, who was not, quote, studied like the scribes and the teachers of the law. Jesus became what the world was willing to ignore, forget, and mistreat. And it is this Jesus that had all the power and authority to condemn the world. Yet the crazy thing is that he chose to save it by being lifted up on the cross, exalting those who have been put down and bringing down those who have exalted themselves. We tend to think that we worship a God who's stuck in, tr in the church buildings or in the pages of our Bibles. That this God is a distant God who doesn't know what's going on and is out of touch in our day and time. A God that punishes us only when we are bad and blesses us if we are good. But that is not the God of the scriptures whom we are called to worship. We worship a God who is willing to enter into the human experience, into the messiness of it all. By becoming fully human himself. And not a human king with privilege did he come. But he came as a human that was poor, that was persecuted, that was oppressed, that suffered, that was meek, that mourned, and yet showed mercy. This is the Jesus that we worship the Jesus we are called to put at the center of our lives was a brown, poor Palestinian Jew. The Jesus we are called to worship was one whom the Pharisees called a gluten and a drunkard because of all the dinner parties he was invited to with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus became one with those whom the world was willing to forget, ignore, and sacrifice. We must be willing to see the destructiveness of our sins, the cost of our sins, and the way it perverts God's good ways. We humans are the ones who hurt one another, who ignore one another, who sacrifice one another, who sin against one another. And not just the Hitlers of the world do this. We all have been touched by sin. Every single one of us. 
We are all guilty of participating and turning the blind eye to human suffering, to oppression, injustice, and death. And so we cannot idealize sin or much less justify it. We have to be willing to see the cost of sin because that, that is what will save us. Otherwise, we will never see the greatness of Jesus' love on the cross and the cost of that love. The cost that he was willing to pay. It is that costly love that saves and transforms and heals us. A love that brings freedom, that welcomes and invites us to love as costly as Jesus loved us. The heavenly kingdom of Jesus is not, is not ours to make an image into based on our ways of sin that we're used to. That causes destruction and justice and oppression. We have been invited to a kingdom far greater than any human kingdom can ever bring into existence. A kingdom where Jesus sits as Lord and yet still calls us brothers and sisters. We do not need to keep looking for a king or a savior. We have a kingdom we are invited to and a God whose love we know is true because it was at full display on the cross. Worship means we put this God, this incarnate Jesus, into the center of our very lives and live our lives according to Jesus and His ways. And is this Jesus who was able to identify with the poor, the persecuted, the oppressed, the suffering, the meek, the mourning, and the merciful whom we are called to worship? We are called to worship a God who isn't distant, but is very near and who wants to dwell with us. A God who wants to be part of our daily lives. And so I invite you for the rest of this Lent to find some time in your day to just sit and worship this Jesus. In any way you feel like you are able to. You do not have to wait until Sunday to do so. All you have to do is to worship the God who brings freedom, liberation, and who is willing to save the world and not condemn it because of his love for the world. It is this Jesus that we, my brothers and sisters, are called to worship and praise. And it is this Jesus who will and has been exalted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you came not to condemn the world, but to save it. We give you thanks that death is not the final saying, that you took it upon yourself to bring us life everlasting by using death itself. We give you thanks because by looking at our sins, we are not called to shame, but are called to healing. And it is because of your great and costly love, Lord. And for that, we give you thanks. May your name always be exalted, honored, and praised through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Only
Father, may I worship you with heart and hand.